Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of the Polis Podcast. Today we're going to get into the history and origins of cities and how they impacted and changed early societies. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing great. Yeah, excited about it. We realize that this is a huge topic. It's pretty enormous. We, we talked and tried to come down to a very specific time point in the history of cities that we wanted to discuss and, and explore on and ask questions of. We'll hopefully do some other podcasts about different aspects of the history of cities. But for today, I think we want to cover where did cities come from? What were the preconditions of cities to form? Where did they first appear and like what did that do for human culture and i think i'll be the first to admit that i definitely don't have all the answers but uh, i think exploring it is super important i think when you're looking at things nine ten thousand years ago it's hard (laughs) to uh it's hard to say that you have all the answers yeah agreed and you're right there's definitely a lot of discussion to be had about the development and history of cities but looking at the very early days and the impact of that is an interesting thing to start with Mm -hmm. interesting thing to explore Mm mm-hmm So why don't you just give us a little primer on some of the basic facts around where and how cities formed? Yeah. So from what I understand, cities started kind of in five places around the world. I mean, everyone knows about the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia. Sure, that's the that's the go-to. Yeah, that is that is definitely the go-to, and I think I think that was probably the first. Yeah, definitely not historians, but I'm gonna say that was probably the first. And if not, then the other place that cities popped up in, initially was in I think around the the Yellow River um, in yeah. uh, in China, as well as in sort of the Indian subcontinent in present-day India, as well as in present-day North America, Mexico. No. Yeah, around there. Um, yeah. Exactly. And then, yeah, in, in South America. Um, I think those were like the first instances of what we would, I wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily call them modern day cities, but they were definitely the break the from tradition. first cities. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The break from tradition, which up to that point had been almost a nomadic lifestyle, you know, just um, roaming around um, hunter-gatherer, figuring out, basically your entire day was spent figuring out where you were going to get your next meal. And how to survive, how to just stay alive. Yeah. Sometimes, I would say actually most of the time, groups of humans would band together and move together both to pool their resources for the hunt as well as for defense. And I think that was basically just the origins of sort of human history up to that point. So for you, how do you define a city? Like what bar do you have to reach to be right. a city? Right. I think we talked about this um, on the last podcast, but... A little we, bit. Yeah, yeah. Because definitions have definitely changed a lot over history of what would be included in this. Yeah, yeah, agreed. For me, the way I would define it is having a certain number of your population be centralized and static at a specific point. So that becomes like a hub around which your economy and society revolves. And additionally, it's a place where a large amount of humans are living close to one another without moving. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know what the the definition in this in like this case large would be. I mean it just depends yeah, on depends on the society. But large enough that you can create I would say I mean I I'd, I'd even go down to the level of saying streets, town squares, maybe like a center for government business or religion. Well, and see, I think that's um, that's even beyond what is necessary. I just think that you need enough people to be a self sustaining group that doesn't right. need to interact with other groups and like for instance if they were breeding with people and they were mating and things you know what i mean like you wouldn't say well if there's 10 people that's not enough to sustain them going out they would have to mix with other groups 10 people cannot mate with each other for 
a hundred generations and <laughs> have that work. Do you know oh, what okay. I mean? Okay. You, so you okay. need enough people that you can have multiple families and have like a social structure that can produce enough food and sustain itself without constant interactions with other groups. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So that's that's what it was. So that could only, that could mean hundreds. You know what I mean? Like, you, right, I, right. I don't think you would need over a thousand people to have what I would define as an early city. You don't. I mean, there are a lot of current day cities that have less than hundred people. And they but I don't considered... think many people would define those as cities. Well, I guess that's true. Well, yeah, but and your very statement of centralized. If you had a city that only had a few hundred people, those people are probably so spread out that we would not recognize that as any kind of centralized community. Well, in in the present day where we have the ability to live miles and miles away from the quote-unquote centralized city, but back then you had no choice. You know, you sure. were living on top of one another, yeah, almost literally. And so by definition, like that centralized area would be actually probably way more dense <laughs> per capita than like a lot of American cities, even, yeah. even if there were only a couple thousand people in it um, because everyone was living one another. This is one of the very interesting things when you look at cities historically that many medieval and ancient cities were dramatically denser than modern metropolitan cities with skyscrapers and things like that just because people had to yeah. live in very small spaces and they had to be close enough to people in order to protect themselves and to gain the benefit of being able to interact with these people and well, you know, sustain themselves i mean i dude I, I think it's simpler than that i think it's simply the fact that they the only way they could get around was walk. So you're going to build something that's in walking distance from, one, some, from something else. And that means yeah, inevitably you have to go up rather than out. Yeah. Especially if you own a business or you need to go to the market or whatever. The only way you were going to get there is by walking. And then the only things you were going to buy and take back to your home were things that you could carry. So of think about where you live currently. And then if you could get what you needed within walking distance for the week and that that includes everything like groceries or any errands you have to run or anything yeah. you want to do for fun like that's how dense it would have to be you know you take all the stuff that's right now surrounding you that is a mile away three miles away 20 miles away and no matter what way you get there all of that back then would have to have been within walking distance but going back to the origins so okay, what, yeah. what was the big shifting point that caused cities to arise like what happened yeah. Because we had hundreds of thousands of years of humans wandering around, eating all sorts of random things out of the ground. Mm -hmm. We're not living in cities. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are a number of different theories out there, but the one that I keep hearing over and over again is the invention of agriculture and the fact that people could produce more than they needed to sustain themselves as a family. And yeah. by, by doing so, that created um, a vacuum where if you had 10 people on a farm and those 10 people would be able to produce enough food for 10 people, that's all they needed to produce, right? But if you had 10 people on a farm and you could produce enough 20 people, then you're doing more with less. Yeah. And suddenly you could shave off eight people. You don't have to pay them either in however you're paying them, right? But Well, there's, those, there's not those... really payment, I wouldn't think, in, in right, that but, sort of primitive society. But, but you don't need that many people to produce the amount that you're producing. and Right, so... to sustain people. You create leisure time essentially yeah but also from what i understand sorry i should back up it was agriculture and it was also the domestication of animals mm. and the use of animals to then produce more i mean that's how that's how they did it like they built a yeah. cart that could till a field and they put a donkey in front of that and they pulled that through their farm and then that produced way more or helped produce way more than 
10 humans could do. Yeah. And by doing so, this, those 10 humans now had no need to be farming, but they still needed something to do, or they needed a way to sustain themselves. They needed a way to like be useful and valuable in the sense that, I mean, what I'm really getting at, I, I know you said there was no payment, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say there was at some point payment, whether or not that was like money or or not. I mean, that, See, that's, that's this debate. is this is an interesting thing that I don't necessarily agree with because I've studied okay. a lot the d- development of commerce and economies and markets and how they function. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really interesting when you think about going from a hunter-gatherer society like you described where you essentially spend all of your time pursuing food and sustenance mm-hmm. and switching to a society where you have a surplus like yeah. the, the real the important thing there is not so much that you now have payment or that people have some drive to be useful to society the important thing there is that now you have a surplus and that surplus can be taken from people so suddenly you create a power dynamic where instead of people constantly pursuing their own survival that can only be garnered through hunting and effectively pursuing food, you now have this thing where people can sustain themselves by getting other people to sustain them, right? If you have to hunt a deer, you have to spend all your time hunting a deer. But if you can get someone to grow a plant and then with your club hit them and take their food or just have some sort of situation, like this is where government derives from, right? This is where militaries derive from. You offer some sort of protection for sustenance. I believe that the earliest societies, the division of labor initially became essentially government and military versus food production. Do you know what I mean? Like there wasn't anything like sophisticated commerce. There wasn't anything really like sophisticated division of labor because even at the beginning, like you said, people grouped for protection in large part. Mm -hmm. And now you have the ability to dedicate more of your people to protection. Yeah. And that Im- immediately makes you a more competitive society because early on, the ability to protect yourselves and dominate other groups was the key to survival, essentially. Yeah, right. But at some point, and I mean, I, I'm not, I, I agree, I guess. My, my main point was that at some point, there were too many field hands that did not have a job and that either could not go into, you know, whatever, if that were like the military or government. Or on the farm, mm. they did not have a job. And by not having a job, they had to move somewhere where they could find a job in order to sustain themselves because they weren't able to get food and they were not necessarily needed on the farm. And so because of that, they started to group together in specific areas in order to argue that those specific areas grew up because they were perfect for trade and defense, which is why you see so many cities based on rivers, well, near water, I would say. That's interesting. I just have a very different understanding of the situation. Okay. Because obviously all pre-industrial cities were based on rivers or lakes or some sort of freshwater. Well, and yes. Okay. Yeah. Pre-industrial cities. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-industrial. Yeah. And that was necessary for agriculture. And so in my mind, the entire reason that we saw cities first form in places like you were talking about, like in this valley, you know, along the Tigris and Euphrates in early China, it's because these places had large amounts of water and very fertile land. And mm-hmm. that's the the reason why you look at on a river, not necessarily for trade. Like it's an interesting concept because eventually, obviously, trade became very important. But early on, I doubt the earliest cities even really interacted with other societies, particularly, or at least in a very limited way. And as they grew, obviously, that became increasingly important. But I don't think that cities grew up in those areas necessarily for trade. 
as much as just because they were ideal for agriculture and sustaining that sort of thing. And obviously protection, as you said. Mm. Um, True. Well, yeah, maybe we're talking about two different points in history. Because, uh, yeah. and I could, maybe it's just a happy coincidence that those cities that were good for agriculture, like the Nile, also connected them to trade eventually. Well, right? rivers are a natural thing for trade. And rivers are also a natural thing for agriculture. They serve and purposes. A, and also a natural thing for defense, like yes. Paris. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so it, 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 you know, it just, it, that's what I'm saying, by just sort of a happy coincidence. Like, you know, maybe the leaders of the cities that, you know, were like, we're going to place this city on this river because it's good for agriculture and good for defense. They probably had no idea that 100, 200 years down the line, the next set of leaders would be like, this is a great city because mm. it is also ideal for trade. But you're even um, talking about like you brought up the concept of jobs and people needing to find a job to earn their stuff. And like I, I, from what I understand, the entire concept of a job or like a trade is a pretty modern concept. Like people, I, I was just reading about executioners in the Middle Ages and how essentially if you were born into a family of executioners, you were an executioner. And it's not like that was your job. Yeah, you you got paid (laughs) as an executioner, but that was your like societal role that's who that was your identity well, yeah you're okay i see i kind of see what you're getting at but like being king is not a job being <laughs> king is what you are do you know what i mean yeah but there had to have been a first there had to have been the first person who was a i i i, I like a good example of this is or a good example of what i mean is when you start having a farm that can produce a surplus of goods you probably need someone to take stock of what you're producing, especially if you're selling it and or distributing it in any sure. way. If you're going to be running the farm, you want to specialize in running that farm and like producing that food. And you would hire someone or designate someone to be an accountant at some point, right? And then okay. so that is now a job that was created out of thin air because of agriculture. And so then like maybe the son of that accountant would then become an accountant himself and then his son become an accountant. Sure. Like, I see what you're getting at. But my point is it's not a job. It's what you do for life like it's life well yeah but it's still you know what i mean right right but the it's still a job in the sense that it is your occupation even if that is what you're doing for life and you're not moving between them the modern idea of a job is that you could if you even really wanted just restart tomorrow and be something else and that's i that i know is not a concept they had back then but but i'm definitely even beyond that the concept of like work time and not work time Back then, yeah, that is your identity, and that is what you are all the time. And there is no division between like my private family life, where I'm just a person, and my life as the king's guard. You're just the king's guard. That is your role. That is your role in society all of the time. And everything about your life and everything about your family's life is shaped around what your role in society is. Yeah. I, like, I think we're kind of saying two sides of the same coin at this point. Yes, probably. One question I have for you, because this is yeah. something that I've thought about and is a weird thing for me about yeah. the origins of agriculture. Yeah. I, th- I think there's a lot of debate about exactly how it started, but right. essentially in my mind, there are two possible ways that it started. Either some people happened upon a place where like, let's say rice was growing yeah, and they happened to pick all of the rice and hang out in the area and see that the rice grew again the next year at the same time. Yeah. Or people actually took these plants and as they were storing them, maybe they like buried them for 
to sustain them or something like yeah. that? Like, do you think that they just observed some of these plants that had a natural annual cycle and then just started harvesting them? And then eventually, after harvesting them every year for generations, actually planted them? Uh-huh. Or do you think they took them and at the start planted them? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, honestly, no idea. Yeah. It could go either either. way. But I've never, because I've never heard that idea from anyone that they just took it seasonally and just harvested it. That was naturally there. Yeah. Yeah. I I really, yeah, I have no clue. Like it could go either (laughs) way. Well, like it's it's not the kind of thing that I think is really knowable necessarily. Well, that too. Yeah. It's it's just an interesting thing that I've thought a lot about because it's, it's, it seems like such a jump to be like, okay, we pick plants all the time. Now we're going to like bury their seeds and see what happens. That just seems like such a jump. Yeah. I mean, my, my best guess is when you're nomadic, you start to learn the terrain really well. And mm. I imagine that you might travel hundreds of miles over the course of a year, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's in a circle, but you probably come back to the same spots over and over again, like yes. the ones that, that you find the best animals at or the best plants at. Well, and like we see with other animals, there are migration patterns that are consistent. Right, exactly. So I imagine that we would follow them or follow the plants in a certain way. And because of that, you start to see patterns. And as Mm. stories and knowledge grows within your community, you realize, okay, in this marshland, we get what we call rice. And it happens at the same time every year. we We can harvest that rice. Why don't we stay here and try to make it work? Like that's that that's like my my guess, but I could be totally no, wrong about that. That makes sense. That's a variation on what I was describing, and, and that that to me makes the most sense. Rather than taking it, I mean, they probably also took. I mean, I mean, it was probably just trial and error. They probably like took rice out of the marshland and tried to plant it somewhere else. Realized that hey, a seed causes you know the rice to grow. Let's plant it somewhere else, and then nothing happened. But that and jump, then, that jump seems like a crazy jump to me as a primitive migrant person. To say you can plant things, like just the concept of planting, like right, it seems right. like such a jump. I mean, you're right, you're right, but I don't know. Uh, it, yeah, you're right. Okay, I don't know. I, don't know. Um, <laughs> okay. I have another question for you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I think broadly, cities uh-huh. are kind of seen as this panacea that we went from kind of a primitive non-civilization culture to a civilization culture that could like make new things and create technologies in advance. So I was just wondering in your mind early on, were there any downsides? What were the problems with this? Were there things that were worse for people living in early cities than before they got into cities? Well, I mean, I think that gets to the question of what are, and we should talk about this as sort of openly, what are the sociological repercussions good or bad Mm. of a city because i think we want to also talk about what was good and why it worked and also talk about what what was bad but i think a lot of people are very aware of it being a good thing because we have modern society you know what i mean like right okay you now have iphones because cities existed cities (laughs) never existed you wouldn't have them essentially okay right and and so like the upside is pretty well known or at least some of the upsides are well known yeah but the downsides i think people neglect somewhat well yeah i mean number one the downside was <laughs> disease right you have all those people living together and also a lack of planning a lack of understanding that planning makes a huge difference on everything from can disease spread easily to uh can fire spread easily to um like building you know there were no such thing as building code so people would just like 
build crazy stuff and then it would it would it, it would fall over that's a natural progression is you oh, build no, a absolutely. permanent you, you build a permanent settlement and that permanent settlement has like if you think about it up to that point maybe probably at some point in some of the societies that started cities someone had built a house i'm sure but up to the point where cities were then created you wouldn't have had the amount of houses that you did spring up in such close proximity to one another, which leads to issues like, you know, things that no one had thought of before, maybe noise, uh, threats from fire, threats from disease, threats from, from floods. Like, so, so, so that was kind of the, that was, that was an initial, an initial downside, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and just looking at the average lifespans of people from archeological evidence before agriculture and before permanent settlements and after like yeah. people's lifespans dropped dramatically. Once they got to cities? Yeah. Oh, Okay. Early on, people's lifespans were cut nearly in half from when they were living nomadically to when they were living in cities. And it, this hmm. speaks to it from an evolutionary perspective, where you're seeing people were able to survive up until they had children more consistently in cities, so that they were able to sustain cities, and they were able to sustain agricultural settled societies. But they didn't live beyond that as they would have prior to that. And, and it's largely because of these diseases that you're talking about. Disease ravaging people and yeah. transferring between people is going to be a much more common thing when you are settled and when you have to deal with animals and feces and how you yeah. dispose of your own waste and yeah. all of that stuff. And, and I think what you were talking about in terms of people's lack of planning, like I know you meant it in terms of lack of city planning, but like in my mind, it's just a total lack of planning. No, no, no. I meant it as a total lack of planning. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, to me, lack of planning is a lack of city planning, but it's also a lack of where are we going to put our waste? Yeah. What are the entrances to this town? Does that matter? You know, can I build a house right here? This is probably not a good idea. Well, and even like, when do we plant food? When do we harvest food? I think well, it's it's easy to miss the idea. They knew that, that one. Well, no, because I think it's easy when you're going from a nomadic society to a settled yeah. society. There are all sorts of things. There are all sorts of rhythms that have to happen that you have to plan and prepare for. Uh -huh. And I don't think nomadic societies in large part planned for things. They planned for things in a nomadic fashion. So they knew that they needed okay. to leave. Well, well, no, 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 for real. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. they were able to tell that they needed to be in a specific location on the map during the winter months and a specific location on the map during the spring months and the winter months. Like that's why they moved around because animals and plants died and or moved and or lived in certain areas around the map and they had to go to those places in order to survive or like rivers froze over and they had to move somewhere where they could get fresh water like they planned for that but when they moved to cities they had to then plan for a specific location year round so at the very least you're right they had to plan for different things yeah but i would even say it's an arguable point when they were nomadic that there was planning going on versus reacting to the situation and those are two different things. If you say, oh, it's getting cold, let's mm -hmm. walk to where it's warmer further south, uh -huh. that is a different thing from saying, oh, yep. this many days have passed, now we need to go south. Like, like planning is a different thing from reacting. But eventually, the knowledge base passes down between generations to where the elders know, now we need to move now. And the younger generation picks up on that because they do Absolutely. this every year, right? I mean, that, that's what I'm getting at is planning. But what you're describing is not planning. What you're describing is knowing how to react to a situation. That's planning. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not planning. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's planning for something that you know is going to come. The initial point where they reacted to the weather changing and then realizing, oh, we need to leave. That's like reacting without planning. I disagree with, the, with your no. Oh, okay. I disagree All with right. this. All right. Okay. If someone punches me 
Yeah. And I react by punching them. And let's say I trained in martial arts and this is like yeah. a thing that I know how to do. Yeah. That doesn't mean I planned to punch them. I planned for this to happen. I didn't plan anything. I reacted. That's that's a completely different thing yeah. from planning. I mean... Knowing how to react is different from planning. These are two very different concepts. And in a settled society, you have to plan for what's coming. Knowing how to react <laughs> presupposes that you know what is... You don't necessarily know what's going to happen. No, no, no. You know how to react to a situation, right? Yes. Knowing how to react is a precondition of knowing how to react to a specific situation. So, like, if you know that summer is coming up, and you can tell based on, like, weather or whatever yeah. in climate you know that you need to move to a place because that is where you're going to get the best harvest or whatever. That is a reaction to the weather changing. But it, what comes with it is the foresight knowing that what summer is and what summer means to you and what you what you need to do in order to take advantage of it. Right. I agree that re reacting effectively, you need to have knowledge. But yeah. it's a different thing to say, it's getting colder, we need to go this direction. Versus saying... It's going to get cold in six months, so we need to save this much rice for the winter. Those are two very different things. One is planning and preparing today, and one is just reacting day to day based upon the circumstance. I mean, they did that too. They, they knew that they needed to harvest as much as possible in summer so they could survive the winter. Well, not when there was no harvest, when they were hunting and gathering. Uh, well, I mean, there's, there no, there's no planning. There's, there's day, getting listen, food day to day. There's, there's a difference between harvest and agriculture. Harvest to me is you go out and you get stuff. And if you come back with more stuff than what you need, you hold on to that and you use that in order to survive longer. Agriculture sure. is the creation of a specific point on a map that you are going to cultivate. It's the domestication of plants. Well, yeah, the, the difference is subtle, but it's there. It's instead of going and finding stuff from the forest, you actually cultivate the land beneath you and you manage and control that to the point of you then being able to create a surplus or sustaining enough for your family. I'm right? completely with you. Agriculture involves planting and harvesting. Harvesting well, is just harvesting. Right. I'm not necessarily with you that nomadic societies, at least at least universally they didn't do this, but like, I'm not necessarily with you that any of them really harvested in a way like they were preparing for winter. What do you mean? Like, of maybe, that's possible. Did. I don't know. Of course they did. I, I'm going to believe they did because resources are so scarce in winter or it's not even winter in, in summer. Like it doesn't have to just be winter. It can be any season. The point of your existence was to find enough food not only to sustain you for that day but to also to prepare for the bad days that would happen no matter what the season was and so a harvest was bountiful when you could get enough food enough resources that would then prepare you for the bad days i mean that that's kind of what i'm getting at but what you're saying is that there was active preparation for this whereas i would guess that these yeah. people ate a lot when they had food because yeah. they were not able to preserve food at this point. So yeah. if you're talking about meat, they definitely were not able to preserve it. If you're talking about plant life, maybe there was some drying of plants, but it was very limited the amount of preservation that they could apply in a nomadic lifestyle to food. So perhaps they saved it for a week or two weeks or something like that. But for the most part, the way we are genetically able to deal with lean times or lean days is by storing fat and then not eating. I think in large part, nomadic societies ate a lot and put on weight when they were able to put on weight and then lost weight in the winter. So I, I struggle to believe that they were harvesting tons of rice and then walking around with tons of rice for months and then eating it in the middle of winter. I've never heard of that. And it seems unlikely. It's possible. It's entirely possible. I, I, I don't, I have no idea. Well, and I doubt that well, there would be much evidence of that left. What I'm trying to get at is that they knew that they couldn't 
preserve food for months at a time. Maybe like the best they could preserve it was a month at a time. Sure. And they would do that because they understood that some bad days were ahead and some good days were ahead. So when they had a surplus by harvesting, I would imagine they would eat as much as they could and then they would preserve what they couldn't. And they would preserve it for as long as they could. You know, and that was the planning. And then they knew that if they needed to move in the near future because the seasons were changing or the migrations of the animals were changing or whatever, mm. they would plan for that movement and they would plan accordingly in order to survive. Because if they knew, like, let's say to get to the next, you know, the next spot where you could hunt was two or three days walk, then you would have to plan to have enough food that you had right now in order to get there. Or you just don't eat for two days. Sure. Or you don't eat for two days, but you're going to try to eat. Like the people who gorge themselves and then did not preserve enough food in order to then make it across those two or three days, or at least not do so comfortably, they would learn from that. That's what like the elders in society would pass down was that knowledge of how to survive and that knowledge of the terrain and that knowledge of, of how to like harvest stuff efficiently and also stay alive. And that's the planning that I'm getting at. And the difference okay. between that and agriculture is that with agriculture, your idea of planning changed. Your idea of planning became what sort of techniques and things do we need to do in order to produce food here at this one location and yeah. not only that like as the weather changes how do we adapt our crops to that which is why you have winter summer fall spring crops right so you can yes. produce year-round if that's possible in your location mm. and if not then you have to figure out a way to survive either preserve your food or you know then harvest or hunt around you but the point is, is that with agriculture, it became more beneficial to stay in one spot than to move around the map. And that mm. to me is the big difference because yes, when you do that, when it's more beneficial to stay in one spot, then you have enough food to sustain yourself. And then you build sort of a set centralized location where people can, you know, are sort of congregating around and they're sustaining themselves year after year. But then someone realizes, hey, we can do this. We can do this process more efficiently. And they rope in, you know, a couple mules and a horse and whatever, and, yeah. and they start to then produce more food than they need. And then maybe they start to give it away or they start to like barter and trade. And then by, by doing so, they realize that, hey, if I can do more for less, I can get more out of this. And then by getting more out of that, by being more efficient, they don't need to have as many farmhands or whatever, right? If they were hiring someone and by not ha needing as many farmhands, then those people who were no longer needed because animals essentially outsourced their jobs to animals, <laughs> then those people needed a place to find jobs in order to sustain themselves. And the way they did that was by going to cities. Whether or not that started around where the agriculture was, they needed a centralized location to create and sustain commerce. And that, to me, is the logical progression of how we went from a hunter-gatherer society up to a society with set centralized static cities yeah and like that's kind of the story and beyond that the benefits and the disadvantages of having that city we're still grappling with today so for you yeah shifting from the kind of economic necessity or the economic regression that allowed for cities to develop yeah. sociologically what changes did society see in terms of the structures going into cities and in, in terms of how people interacted with yeah. each other, how people related to each other. Because once you have the surplus, you suddenly have what we would think of today as wealth and power. Exactly. That's what I was going to say is immediately you have people with more wealth and power because you have people who control more resources. 
Mm. And those with the most prosperous farms and those farms that could produce the greatest yields and then also hire the guards to prevent those from being stolen and then also hire the guards to, I don't know, do some shady stuff. Like, (laughs) okay, you know, essentially create serfs, right? Hire people to till your fields um, and make them as efficient as possible by, I don't know, not paying them, (laughs) right? If you could have if you could have labor that you didn't have to pay. uh, But you are paying them. You're paying well, them in food in the same way that everyone right. was paid when they were hunter-gatherers. But like the creation of power and wealth at such a level that hadn't been seen before, now with this access to power, people became corrupt by the power, I would say. I would, I would. I I'm would not sure corrupt is the word I would use here. Corrupted? Maybe not corrupt. Although to us, like what I'm describing is a person who is corrupt. I think that what you're describing from a different perspective is someone who is having an exchange of goods and services. <laughs> like this person that has power and is right. creating these serfs, as you describe right. them. Right. Like which they're he, essentially they put, providing these people food, security, yes. shelter, a sustained life. For slavery. Essentially, right. Oh, yes. Okay, all right. Are you going to argue that this was like good for the people that were enslaved? I'm not sure that the transition from hunter-gatherers yeah. perhaps dying off in the winter and trying to survive every week. Like, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad transition. Yeah, but what you're doing, though, is you're making a judgment call on how these people want to live. You're also making a judgment call, though. No, 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 no. no. Well, well, sort of, sort of. You're like, making the opposite what, judgment call about how they want to live. I, I mean, sort of, you're right. But this gets real dicey because on the one hand, they're making a decision under duress. Their decision is, do I stay and I survive, but I have to live in real terrible conditions without any personal freedoms whatsoever? Or do I go out and die? I mean, that's like, that's right. not really a decision. Like, it's not a decision. You know what I'm saying? It's not something that they're making because they want to. They're, they're doing it because they have to. You'll do a lot of things to survive, right? I completely agree. But that doesn't mean that it's a worse situation. I, I mean... If you go up to someone who's going to die and you say, I will feed you if you become my slave, that's giving them a choice. And then they... No, have... it's not giving them a choice. It is not. I disagree 100%. That that's if you don't choice. go over to them, they're going to die. That doesn't mean that... I mean... You're so they have no choice where... before you walk up. They have no choice. They're going to die. Yeah. You walk up and you say, I will feed you if you become my slave. Now they have a choice, a poor choice, a very limited choice. But like, you're not necessarily hurting them. You're keeping them from dying. And I know that this is probably going to sound really bad. So like, I'm probably making myself look like a fool here. Uh, uh, and I shouldn't be saying all of this. But like, I, I, I'm just saying that is a structure that we would not endorse today. We would not say that in a society, you should have that society. But I think in an early primitive society where you're looking at either half of you are going to die every year or you can have sustained security, but you have no wealth, you have no freedom. Yeah. Like that's not necessarily a worse situation. Right, right. Although at this point in human history, the only reason why you wouldn't be able to sustain yourself is because you wouldn't have the resources to necessarily start a farm and sustain yourself. Like at this point, I'm viewing humans as you either live on a farm and your farm is not efficient enough to outsource your job to animals, or you live in a city, in which case you have to go find a job somewhere else. So you're looking at a much further along society, like three, 4,000 years ago. Well, well, yeah, because at this point, in order for agricultural wealth to build up enough in order to then have serfs and in order to then like, right? Like you had to have gone through a couple revolutions 
uh, meaning circles, not like rev- like, like like pitchfork revolutions. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Just a couple I just of cycles. Be, yeah. I, exactly. That that's a better word. In order to have accumulated that wealth, right, and it might it might even be like cycles of generations. It might be cycles of months or years. I don't I don't really know. You know, just what, whatever it is. Right, yeah. just depends. But it takes time. Um, Compounding. That's my, that's my, that's my point. Is it takes time and like the dichotomy of choice between you either are going to work on my farm and be a serf or you will die is just it's not I, I don't think it's necessarily there i think more so people became serfs because they were forced into it and or they could not find any other job and they had to then work the farm work work the fields and be as efficient as possible and by doing so yes you were given food and somewhat shelter probably every day you know, because they had to keep you alive in order to work, but it was not really in existence. See, I feel like I need to push back on this entire concept because I I think that what you're describing is very much what kind of existed in slavery in the in the Americas. Yeah, I mean, but what you're describing, I don't think necessarily applies to early civilizations in the same way. Like, if you look at India, which probably in, in the most modern sense, has had the strongest caste system over the last several hundred years. Okay. People have a certain status. They have a certain place in society. Or like in relatively recent history, they had very specific roles in society. When you're looking at Brahmins, when you're looking at different levels, right? Uh-huh. And that, again, it's not like it's a job. It's, it's who you are. It's your existence in society. And so when you're talking about these early civilizations and you're talking about serfs, and you're talking uh-huh. about things like that. Like what you're essentially talking about is agricultural laborer. And agricultural laborers had certain limitations on their freedom. They had certain amounts of food and stuff provided to them. But it's unlikely that they were sad, forcefully enslaved people universally in a, in these societies in the way that we would have had in American slavery. Like they were a part of society. Do you know what I mean? Like there were, of course, war slaves. And you look at things like in the the Middle East, when you look at the Assyrians and you look at the Babylonians and you look at slaves taken after war, uh-huh. like you, you do have that sort of thing. But the general agricultural working class, like if you look at Sparta, Sparta, we have very good documentation of these sorts of things. And I know yeah. this is getting much more modern, like this, not modern, obviously, but like much more recent City-state. than yeah, 6,000 yeah, yeah. years ago. But there you had enslaved people and you had citizens of Sparta, right? And they, there was a clear divide there. And we don't have any records from the slaves, so we don't know how they were feeling about the whole situation. But... I mean, I feel like we do have some records, so they know how they feel. But continue with what you're well, saying. Well, we don't. We we don't have a lot of books written by the slaves of the Spartans. You know, okay. like most of the accounts of them are actually from the Athenians. It's mostly external views of them. But that, that's beside the point. Like yeah. The the, my, the the point is, it seems highly unlikely that these permanent parts of the society who interact yeah. with all the time the actual citizens of Sparta uh-huh. were in the same kind of relationship and society uh-huh. as you had in the uh-huh. south in the united states or in brazil during colonial times like you didn't have the same racially divided other people who are really just even viewed at times as a different species like they were enslaved they had a different role in society but it was not the same kind of ownership property rights like you know what i mean like the view of these beings as property i don't think existed in early cities and early societies a lot of our concepts around jobs and roles in society and the way we think about it likely did not exist in these places well okay i i I feel like i understand the distinction that you're making i think 
<laughs> I think. I'm trying to, I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking about it, but I think what I want to come back to, and I think sort of the larger point to this is that regardless of what you call it, the creation of cities and the surplus of agriculture still created these new power dynamics that weren't necessarily there before. And by doing so, that allowed for people to enslave others in whatever way you want to call it, which... Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Looking back on it, categorically bad. Right. But, you know, maybe at the time was just, hey, this is how things are going to be. I guess that's the point of what I'm getting at is that a major downside of, I don't know if it's a major downside of cities, but it is a consequence of the agricultural surplus that was then exacerbated by cities was the... The domination of some by others. Really the creation of different classes. And like this yeah. gets into sort of the beginnings of capitalism and the beginnings of our modern day, like the way that we go through society. I'm not saying mm. that modern day capitalism 100% equals slavery. Like I'm not going to go that far. I'm but, glad you're not going there. I mean, that is another discussion. But but what <laughs> okay, I'm trying to get at sure. is that at the end of the day, these people wanted to create as much wealth as possible and the way you do that is you lower your production costs and i mean really think about it like if you could have power and your level of power is based on your ability to produce and up to that point social stratifications based on class you know like like crazy levels of class didn't really exist i mean they existed but not to the level at which they became once there was an agricultural surplus and once cities were created then you're going to try to accumulate as much power and as much wealth as possible. There's no social repercussions because nobody had really thought about that. And also, everyone was kind of in on it. If you have the power, you're going to hire the guards and you're going to hire the military, essentially foot soldiers, police. I, I go back to when you look at hunter-gatherer societies, like people would be connected by bonds of kinship, right? And I think that's one of the big transitions that you get with, with cities. Like what you're talking about with the slavery, what you're talking about people being able to form classes, like what you end up with when you have larger numbers of people together is suddenly there are some people in your society who are in no way related to you, even distantly. Uh -huh. And the idea that you're going to enslave your brother or your cousin and force them into labor, that is a further jump probably even for early people than to enslave these other people that you fought with in a war and conquered, right? The ability to look at people, and obviously, I think, as we've gone through history, who we define as the quote-unquote other, or who we define as different from ourselves, and who societies have been willing to abuse in these ways, has gotten farther away. Like, I think, at a certain point, it was your family, or your clan, or your immediate group, you didn't necessarily abuse, but you could abuse anybody else. And then maybe the people of your religion and then maybe the people of your country and then maybe your race, like it's, it's stretched. And now I think a lot of people are not willing to abuse anybody, but there are still people who like, if you look at a lot of nationalist policy, a lot of nationalist people, they're like, we should treat our people better than those people. We should treat our people better than all of the other people around the world. Right. And so you still have some of that divide of the people that are in and the people that are out. But I think early hunter-gatherer societies would not have probably had very much of that because most of the people involved in your immediate grouping that you're around all of the time uh -huh. are related to you in some way. And so cities did allow for that because you, you have so many more people now who you are not connected to, you are not related to, that you don't have these bonds of kinship and you can feel better at that time about 
abusing them or about placing yourself above them. Uh-huh. And so that that I, I completely grant you. The formation of classes, the formation of a stratified society is absolutely something that came out of cities. But one, one thing that – and this is I think goes back to the point that I was saying about the quote-unquote serfs or slaves in this sort of situation are not necessarily worse off or hurt. And, and this applies to your, your comments about capitalism earlier. I, all I was saying was that this is the beginnings of – like this is l- the literal beginnings of our current – Economy. It's the creation of property, the first creation of wealth and property. Yeah, that's all I was saying. Okay, good. Yeah, that makes sense. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right. But what I was going to say is that those people, those people at the bottom of a city, early city, were not necessarily worse off than they had been prior. But now you have the opportunity for some people to be better off due to their labor. And so even if well, no one is worse than as they were as a hunter-gatherer, which it's possible they were worse off than they were as hunter-gatherers, but even if you want to say that they weren't. You have now some people who are much better off due to this new situation. And this is, I think, what ends up leading you down this road of continuing to follow the growth and development of cities. And eventually, when you get into capitalism, the growth and development of capitalism, that this system, at the very least, makes some people better off. Some group can appreciate the bounty of this. How that is divided up and how that affects the relationships within society is a completely separate question. But some people get this bounty because it does objectively create this additional bounty. And cities definitely did that early on and continue to do that. No? No, it's not, it's not, no, it's not, that, I don't, it's not that I don't disagree. It's just uh, at the end of the day, we won't talk about it, but I feel like I disagree with I, I mean, I, I know I disagree. I'm sorry. I'm going to take this back. I know I disagree with people being better off under serfdom than they were elsewhere, all things being equal. But you hit the nail on the head with, like, even if they are better off, it still creates a dynamic where there now are people who have way more power than others. It creates a class system, right? Yes. Like, through and through, having more wealth and being able to wield that wealth to then create more wealth. And sometimes... Probably more often than not, I'm a wager at the expense of others. That's what makes a difference. And but I think whether or not it is at the expense of others, you now have a dynamic of inequality. Well, and no, this I mean, is... That, is, that is the point of at the expense of others. Is like It would be equal if the wealth did not come at the expense of others. No, it wouldn't. Yeah, it would. Why? Well, if you and I don't interact mm-hmm. and I make something, like let's say I grow some plants and you're off somewhere else and you grow some plants and you grow fewer plants than I grow... I have more stuff than you. We didn't mm-hmm. interact at all. My wealth mm-hmm. didn't come at the expense of you. Well, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the way that you get ahead, the way that you become the most efficient and the wealthiest farmer, whatever, is by lowering your production costs. Or increasing your efficiency. Well, how do you increase efficiency? You could increase productivity. You could have yeah, production but- costs the same and increasing productivity. So you're talking about re- reducing per unit production costs. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But you don't necessarily have to do that by hurting the people producing this stuff. You could increase what they take, but reduce the other outlays in the production costs. Yeah, that's true. Like that's what capitalism does, right? Like uh, wages generally rise and the owners of the property generally get more of the benefit than the workers. But both parties are generally benefited. That's why both parties participate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess just I, I just don't have enough faith. I just don't. I just don't have enough faith that in the majority of cases, the rising wealth of the ruling class at that point benefited their underlings, their serfs, enough so that the serfs, like, proportional. 
I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. But proportional is a different question. Well, it is. It doesn't. I mean, I guess you're right. But like these people were stuck in a class that they could never leave. And right. whether or not their productivity grew or I don't know, like the, the Lord <laughs> who ruled over the lands sure. um, yeah. somehow became more productive. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the wealth that was created never really benefited the serfs to the point that it should have. So something I like to think about is how people's lives changed when they moved to cities and you know how their day-to-day life would change okay. from being in the field and also how they would carry themselves within society right and mm. i don't know i just try to imagine myself back in the day if i were moving from you know the rural country to a city even if it were just a couple hundred buildings or whatever yeah you still your day-to-day interactions are different and like completely you know and and what what does that mean for society and, and how we interact yeah and so you know what do you what have you learned about that what do you what do you think about it well i think one of the keys is that Moving from a farm or moving from the countryside into any kind of urban situation, as we deal with today, you're going to be dealing with more people that you are not related to, that you don't know. And you're going to be dealing with people who are strangers. And certainly when you move in there, they're strangers. Even if it's a small community and you end up getting to know everyone, you won't know them in the way that you knew your parents and your siblings who lived on this farm with you out in the countryside, right? And this is something that we obviously deal with a lot today, but it's something that I think is really interesting because when you look at early cities, one of the earliest things we see, one of the earliest forms of writing is Hammurabi's Code, right? Like we have this early set of laws. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that you start to have relations in cities determined by this concept of legal norms and this concept of you have to interact with people in a kind of standard way. And so instead of having an internal familial structure that is based upon mutual respect, you now have a system that is based upon punishment. And it is enforced by a higher authority that is not related to either party necessarily. And I think that that fundamental difference, that is a transition from going from a tribal familial structure to a societal structure that allows you to interact with strangers in a way that you could never do without that sort of enforceable code. Because without that, you only have kill the person before they kill you or you have hope that they don't kill you and that they'll be nice to you <laughs> you know what i mean like like unless you have an external authority that will enforce things upon you if you do something wrong you have no ability to interact with a stranger without fear and this is one of the things that i think is really interesting because it it the problems the cities create like the fact that you're now around someone that you don't know and they might stab you at any point that problem forced humans to develop more complicated and advanced systems and to develop concepts like the rule of law, like a punishment. Like, just think about the concept of a punishment. Like, punishments probably didn't exist before cities. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Because you don't have external authorities. You don't need them because your community right. is so close-knit that, you know, you're able to solve those problems amongst yourselves. Yeah. And so I think that that's the most fundamental change that now you're regularly dealing with people who you are not related to. You have to have a public-facing existence. Uh-huh. And I think that that fundamentally changes 
the way you think about yourself, the way you can exist. And, and obviously it, that brings up class things that it eventually arose and you, you have all sorts of issues with that. But I think as someone moving to a city, like I don't know how it would have worked, but it, it, it is fascinating to think about if you have a city and some people walk up to it. Obviously the initial thought is danger. There are people who probably have some sort of weapons because they hunt that are now approaching your small little settlement. Most of the time, I would guess, people approaching a city would be attacking it or like potentially attacking it at the very least. If only 1% of people approaching a city attack it, that's a very dangerous thing. And so somebody actually moving in and trying to build then a life, like how do you do that? How do you integrate someone? And this is probably where concepts of like fealty come from. Like if you're going to move into this domain of this lord or this king or whoever enforces the law in the city, as Uh we just discussed you have to place yourself beneath them. You have to admit to their authority. And if you don't admit to their authority, there's no way to function within a legal system with these people. And so like, I think what we're talking about is not only does the surplus and and the nature of society in a city necessitate the establishment of kind of classes at, at an early stage, but the fact that you need to have someone who can exert authority neutrally or at least theoretically neutrally, requires people to place themselves below a n- different authority. And that's an interesting thing that I think is necessitated. You, you uh. cannot interact with non-familiar people without that. And yet that is something that obviously creates power and abuse or potential abuse by that person that now has this authority. Uh-huh. The, the history of civilization has been the history of us dealing with the consequences of that and trying to figure out how to function in that uh-huh. structure that is necessary once you are dealing with strangers. What about you? Like, what, what do you is the fundamental change or some of the important changes when you move to a city? So for me, the, the main difference that I see is that I think even way back when cities were pretty small, but especially now that they're huge. What cities bring is a sense of anonymity to you okay. because now that you are not living with your family and with people who you see every single day, you know you don't have to necessarily adjust to or conform to those norms as much as you want. You're more free to be who you want, hmm. you know, essentially within the confines of that culture. Like it has obviously grown to the point where now you can basically do and be whoever you, whoever you want. Yes, our freedoms have magnified, yeah. Yeah, and like back then it was much harder. But there still is a level of anonymity there that you didn't have before, which kind of speaks to what you're just talking about, where since there is now anonymity between people or a strangeness between people, you have to kind of go to a higher power or a quote-unquote higher power, a decided-upon higher power. Yeah, the authority, uh, the established authority. Yeah, to resolve some sort of disputes. On the other side of that, you know, you can go about your life a little, you know, a little bit differently and sort of be who you want to be. And maybe this is more of a concept in modern cities. But what is so interesting to me is even in modern cities where people who aren't from cities still, like they know that cities exist and they know that people can be who they want to be in cities. Mm. Even now, moving from a rural area to like a city, people still encounter that freedom that they didn't know they had before. Um, it's also it's a freedom, but there's also a flip side of it being like an incredible loss of community and a loss of understanding of like where you fit. Yeah, which has led to a lot of 
a huge amount of loneliness and suicides and there there's a there's a, there's a bad side to it well there's a very bad side because one of the things that i was going to bring up i'll let you continue yeah. in just a sec but one of the things yeah. that i was going to bring up is this phenomenon that what you just described you have to have that higher authority to enforce the law upon people and what you see now because of the level of anonymity is that you see people doing terrible things to other people in public that they would never do to if people that knew them were watching, right? Like you'll go to a restaurant and you'll have somebody uh-huh. just yell at a waiter and be really angry when they didn't get their order right, where if their mother was around, they would not do that. I think people feel a freedom to act badly in the same way that right. they do on the internet. They, they feel a freedom to act badly because of the right. anonymity. And that, that's definitely a downside as well. But yeah, con- continue. Go back to the positive side of that anonymity, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it... it uh... <laughs> I guess my main point is that this is something I have seen that has continued throughout the ages, is the move from a rural area to a city creates, you know, those people, the people who I talk to who have, like, I know this isn't my personal experience, but from talking with people who actually have moved from a rural area to a city, they all say the same thing, that it's just, it is a level of freedom that they're allowed to do and be who they want to be without feeling judged by their community, whether that's good or bad. I mean... It's just a really interesting concept because that level of community still exists today and probably will exist forever in smaller towns and villages and not so much in a city. And that's a major struggle when moving to a city is finding that community. How much of that freedom in the modern context do you think is derived from the fact that they're moving to a more anonymous part of society in cities that has a wider range of freedom and how much of it is because cities in large part are more liberal and accepting and diverse than smaller communities. Well, I I think one presupposes the other, but that's not necessarily true. Is it? I think so. Like if you look at a country that's incredibly homogenous, like Poland, sorry, I know that was just a random country, but like, like if you just look at a country that is largely the same religion, largely the same ethnicity, and you look at their cities that maybe are just as homogenous as their rural populations, like they're not necessarily going to have the same range of freedom moving to the city that they would when they move to a more diverse place in the United States. If you look at voting patterns, and I will argue, even if I'm not 100% sure of this, but I'm like pretty sure of this. If you look at voting patterns and you break it down by city versus rural areas in any country in the world, you will find that cities are the more liberal places, the more left-leaning places. But why is that is my point? By definition, a city creates a more tolerant, quote unquote, tolerant level of thinking, even if it's not necessarily, even if a lot of, you know, for a lot of reasons, it's not tolerant. It's more tolerant because people are exposed to more different things. So they have to. Accept yeah. It. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is, this is, this is something that, yeah, yeah. Right. People are forced to accept things. Not, not only are you, are you forced to accept it, but like you just, I think just stop caring because your life in a city can be so you know, you can you can live in a city and never cross paths with somebody else. So because of that, you live more in a. It's more. It's really interesting because I feel like in a city, you can, it is more possible to live in a bubble than it is in a small rural community, which mm. allows you to create your own sense of self. But at the same time, you can still be super isolated from others in a city than like more so than well, you're in that you bubble that you were just describing right right like but 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 it, but what's what's interesting and this is something i've been like kind of fascinated with looking at how cities generate social relations you know you can think you're super tolerant because you live in a city that prides itself on its tolerance but you're actually not because your bubble in that city 
never crosses paths with another person's bubble, and therefore you don't understand where they're coming from, right? You might see them on the street, you might pass them, and you might be like, okay, that person, you know, they're doing what they want, but you never really interact. Whereas in a small community, it's almost impossible not to. And the judgment might not be there, but Mm. the interaction isn't there. I think that 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 part of it is one side of the coin. The other part of it is just simply like the size and diversity that comes from people being in cities. So because humans are just inherently different, like even even in your example of Poland, right, which you're right is a relatively homogenous country when you compare it to like other countries of the same size or whatever, just having that many people living in a place creates just different levels of thought, you know, like, like just yeah. by just like the probably just laws of math. <laughs> I'm just going to go with say capital M math, like you just have a higher probability of different people. And the way that they think is just different. Well, and to take it back to the ancient setting that we were talking about, yeah. like the cities necessitate more class distinctions. Ancient cities had that class distinction where those people wouldn't be interacting with each other. Like what you were talking about, about people right. not interacting. Like they right. are physically in close proximity, but because there is now additional wealth generated for the upper class, mm-hmm. they are not by definition interacting with the lower classes. Whereas mm-hmm. these more homogenous, less mm-hmm. class-based rural populations mm-hmm. are not going to have that same distinction. So you're right. Sure. Like, within a, like modern cities, you have like social bubbles as well, but you also have these age and socioeconomic class bubbles, class bubbles. Yeah. Which actually made me think of another reason why I think that cities are more liberal than rural areas too, probably, I guess is, and maybe I could be wrong. This, this one's a little bit more tenuous, but you know, by having those class distinctions and by having those class distinctions being so apparent in everyday life, Mm. you suddenly have people, especially in the lower classes looking up and being like, what is wrong with this picture? And that typically is the like breeding grounds of sort of more left-leaning political views, right? The, I, th- I think it's no surprise that kind of the, I feel like the higher you go in the income ladder, the more conservative you can, you probably get, especially if you start out high on the income ladder. Well, at, the richest least, states in the U.S. are the most liberal. But that's a little bit different. I know. You can have really productive companies that generate a lot of money, and therefore the GDP of that state goes up but you know if you had one person making a billion dollars and that person's super conservative but in order to make a billion dollars they employ you know like 50 people they make like 10 bucks an hour right and they look at that one ceo and they realize that there's a class issue this is unfair but that billion dollars goes to the gdp you still have a so high... you're, you're arguing that the disparity in wealth is what pushes people toward the, the left as opposed to the total wealth so it's yeah. the inequality Exactly. Okay. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. As the distinctions between the classes grow more stark, mm. you have a rise in a left-leaning political block. And because, especially back in the day, when you needed more people in order to produce, right? When you needed more people, then and at, then those people moved to cities. Now we're kind of getting into like industrialized cities, but yeah, because I was going to say like this does not apply. No, it doesn't. It, it it doesn't. It doesn't. But but I, I guess it. You know, we, we're kind of going off often a little bit of a tangent, which is fine, fine. because yeah. it relates back to what we were talking about, which is how early cities changed society simply by their existence. And I yeah. think all of this ties into what you were saying about rule of law, which ties into anonymity and how people see themselves, and how they interact with one another, yeah. and how they also are able to 
express themselves personally, right? It's it's a mm. difference. I think the existence of high fashion comes from the fact. No, no, okay. for real. Like, okay, okay. like comes from the fact that as people move to cities and and felt more and more anonymous and and that led to them wanting to express themselves more and more they then try to distinguish themselves more and more i think and go out more on a limb in terms of what they want to do and who they want to be and this leads to different fashion choices and you know because you are in such close proximity to people and you're seeing them every day like not not necessarily the same people but you're seeing a bunch of different people every day yeah you want to express yourself differently and also you don't know maybe we want to maybe you want to show off or something and that potentially could lead to people wanting to go out on a limb more with what they wear and, and how they express themselves. You do see this from the earliest societies where obviously you have people with a large amount of power, but people outside of that power who don't don't have that power often are doing a lot of things to gain the attention or gain the favor of those people in power. And what you're describing right. about gaining attention or being more expressive, not fading into the anonymity. Like what what you're describing essentially is you're more anonymous in this sort of society. You don't have an obvious place in this society. And so you are trying to provide yourself a place through your yeah, actions and the way you present yourself. Yeah. You get to carve out your own identity and your own future in a way. I mean, I know back then like social mobility was basically non-existent, but like it's more so than in a rural area, right? Well, social so mobility always is going to exist within your bound. Right. Whatever area you're limited in, you can move within those circles. So like if you are in a noble class, you can move up and down within there and associate with people, get closer or further from power within that. To a point, but yes. Right. It's limited. You're right. It it would have been dramatically more limited in ancient times, but it's it's definitely true. And yeah, I think that's that's probably a good place to stop for the week. Um, John, do you want to... See us out. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Does that sound good? <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. Okay. Um, so okay. thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. You can find the show notes and some descriptions of the things we talked about on our website at subjectradio.com slash polis slash 002. Please feel free to share the show with anybody else. You can go rate us or review us on iTunes or any of your Android apps, whatever you like. I will talk to you next week, Yevon. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Have a good week. Thanks. Okay, bye.